Okay. So we resume our uh, series in Acts. Um, for those of you that like a good bit of wordplay, um, this is called More Haste, Less Speed, and it's about fasting. You get it? More haste, less speed, speed, faster. Uh, okay, look, it's not a good joke, right? But anyway, it, the point is, the reason why this title like that is because I want us to understand fasting in the right biblical context. What is it? Where, where does fasting play a part, and how should we apply fasting in our Christian walk? And the reason for the title is uh, I want to do it properly. That's really the point. More haste, the speed is a saying to say, do it well, do it fast, but do it, do it well. Mostly do it well. Uh, so I, I thought we'd call it that, and then we'll have a look at what these verses are. It's Acts 12, 25 to Acts 13, verse 5. Um, and I think this, it, this is probably something we, we do need to look at as a church. I think, I think we, I would need to admit that in the past we've made mistakes about what we thought fasting was and how we, we did it, um, which is fine. We all make mistakes and churches make mistakes, but it's, we need to learn from what we do. And I don't think we fully understood the biblical conditions and purposes of fasting. So let's look at the correct context for fasting, and that's what we do today, uh, looking at when it might be appropriate to fast, both in a personal and a church context. Uh, we'll also look at how that feeds into discovering the will of God and how we seek in the same way as the Acts Church did. Uh, for a historical context, uh, we are looking at the first part of the sending of Barnabas and Saul uh, in our verses. These verses will see the church of Antioch gather to pray over them, and send them off, even though that wording is wrong. I'm going to explain that. The translation is slightly off in the NIV, uh, but they will release them in the obedience of the Holy Spirit. And I'll talk about uh, what uh, the, the difficulty in that translation, but um, why it's important. Uh, so that's where we learn uh, land in terms of the timeline. Let's have a look at the verses. Uh, Acts 12, 25 to 13, uh, 1 to 5. So when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets uh, and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, to learn that word, Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, and uh, Manian, uh, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshipping the, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Uh, the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to uh, Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Uh, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Okay, so what's... What's, where are we? What's, what's going on here uh, in these verses? Uh, first, we learn uh, Barnabas, Saul, uh, and John Mark were all at the church in Antioch, having returned from delivering a gift of support to the church in Jerusalem, which we looked at uh, two weeks ago. Um, Saul and Barnabas were among the teachers and prophets there, um, as were Simeon, Lucius, and Man Manian. Uh, Simeon, who, who was called Niger, 
uh, and Niger means black skin in Latin. He was, we presume, obviously a black African among the congregation at Antioch. Possibly uh, he was the same Simeon who carried uh, the, uh, what is said, carried Jesus' cross. So uh, some context around who these people are, I think, is helpful. Uh, Manian mentioned he had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, which we learned about a couple of weeks ago, and this was the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist and presided over one of Jesus' trials. Uh, and, and what we find here as we join these verses is there's a shift in the Acts church. So what we find before, if, if we just try and think back, is you'll find that much of the work to spread the gospel was as a result of being persecuted. So they would almost react. So they would, they would uh, share the gospel, they'd be persecuted, and in that persecution they'd then go and share the gospel again. So there was almost a reactionary way of sharing the gospel. But now we get to this point, and now we change. They change the approach. This time, everything they do to spread the gospel, to share the gospel, becomes mission-driven. We read in our verses that the Holy Spirit sent them, and it's, it's interesting to note that the church never sent anyone. And that's what I just want to tell you now whilst we're looking at verses 2 and 3 that we're focusing on. Um, the translation is a little bit clunky um, because the Greek actually reveals something different in what the Holy Spirit did and what the role of the church was in this moment. And in fact, what, it's, what it says is the church released them for their ministry, but the Holy Spirit sent them. So the Holy Spirit, uh, the church does not send people, it releases people based on what they hear from the Holy Spirit. And I was going to put these words up, and I haven't, I haven't put them on the slide, but there's the Greek word, it says ekpempo, uh, which is when the Holy Spirit is, is sending. So that's a sending of. And it's normally in context of the Holy Spirit sending people. Whereas the church releases uh, apuluo, which is a Greek word, apuluo, and it says that's a releasing of people. So even now, we're just getting this sense uh, of a change in the church that we're understanding the structure of how it works. The church is responding to the Holy Spirit and releasing people based on what they're being told by the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you've read, um, some of you might, have, uh, and might know uh, the history of this church. I know the highlights of the history of this church and what happened in the early days uh, back in, from 1939 onwards, uh, there was a sense of many people coming and going in this church. There were people sent out to places, whether that was here in other countries, but actually the church was releasing people. The church here, just like any other church, was releasing people based on what they were hearing through the Holy Spirit. So that, that practice should not change, and we should not assume that the church is, is sending, is doing the sending. What we do is we pray, we hear from God, and then we respond to what the Holy Spirit says. I think this is just helpful in understanding that the church never sends people. Only God sends people. The church releases them. It's why we say um, equip and release in the church. It's why we say we don't send. Just to kind of drive the point home, we equip, we train, we build up people, and we say, now we pray to the Holy Spirit, we pray, pray to God, we say, Lord, what do you want to do? What's, what's the next step for this person or for this group of people? And then the church says, now we let you go and do God's work. That's kind of the principle. That's how it all works, and that's now how we're getting a kind of uh, more structured approach in the Acts church. 
So these are the two verses we are looking at. Um, Acts 13, 2-3. While they were worshipping the Lord, fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from Barnabas and Saul for the works which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Okay. So first we have the Holy Spirit calling them to the work of God. And in verse 3, we have the affirmation by the church to release them to that calling. And so there's a brief introduction into the context. And just so you know, next week we'll kind of overlap on these verses, uh, just so we're always staying in context of what God is doing, because then he sends them, and then we hear about the sending, and then we hear about what they do when they're sent. So there might be slight overlaps over the next couple of weeks. But it just gives us an idea, keeps us in context of what's going on. For this week, we'll concentrate on just these two verses and understand what's going on. Uh, Just as we look at verse 2, what it shows is much of the context we need to get to grips with right away to apply fasting in the Christian faith. Verse 2, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting. So, their primary reason to gather is to give praise to God. Their primary reason to come together is to worship and praise the Lord. Now, some have said they... In this moment, they're doing this because they're not sure what to do next. That might be true. There's nothing in the word that says that, by the way. But we, but we assume because they're fasting as well, they want to hear from God. But maybe a little bit of this and a little bit of just basically they, came, they just worship God because they, they just want to worship him. So maybe, maybe two little things there. But anyway, the primary reason is they want to give praise to God. And the the reason why this is really important is because the first word in our verse is while. It is not not they did something separately. They didn't take fasting and go, we're going to pray, and then for the next four weeks we're going to fast. That wasn't, that doesn't, it isn't how it works. It's almost like that's part of their worship. Fasting formed part of their worship, of their glorifying God together, praising him. They're not worshipping and fasting to be a means to get a heightened spiritual experience or visions or special insight or awareness. You'll hear that a lot. And in this day and age, we're hearing a lot of people using fasting as some incorrect means to get a new revelation from God. That's not what fasting does, and it's not the purpose of fasting. Fasting here, and in many contexts, is hearing the will of God. What is the will of God? It is is not to be heightened. We're not not fasting to be heightened in our own experience of God. Really important that we place fasting in the right context. So this word, while, actually tells us very quickly that it was common practice to worship and fast when giving praise to God. And in many ways, this has come from a Jewish Jewish practice. This is historical. They know how to do this. They know how they should do this. Uh, David fasted while he pleaded for the infant's life. I think I've got all the verses listed. Yeah. Uh, In 2 Samuel 12, 16, David fasted while he pleaded for the infant's life. Psalm 35, 13, David even fasted on behalf of his enemies as well. King Jehoshaphat claimed, proclaimed a national fast in Judah when they were threatened with attack from the Moabites and Ammonites. That's 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3. Queen Esther, her servants, and all the Jews in the capital city of Susa fasted for three full days 
before she went before the king to plead for the Jews to be spared uh, against the wicked schemes against her people. That's Esther 4.16. People of Nineveh, after Jonah's preaching, were so convicted that they believed in God and called a great fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them, it says. By the decree of the king, they would not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. So what we're understanding here are, are different contexts where fasting has been applied. Daniel 9, verse 2 to 3. Daniel contemplated Jeremiah's prediction of the 70-year desolation of Jerusalem, gave his attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer, supplications of fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So in just these few examples, there's, there's a lot of examples of fasting, but in these few examples, we get a sense that the, some of the purposes are sorrow, grief, danger, or repentance, and, and some more, and some more. There might be some others. There, will, there is definitely more situations in which uh, that uh, you use fasting. But in verse 2 of our reading, it actually sums up how fasting is meant to be applied, just like in the Old Testament. Fasting was always associated with praying. Um, and and I, th I, th I do think back in my experience of fasting, uh, more in a corporate, a church context, uh, and when I, when, I read, when I read this, I think it's, it was a correction for me, because we've often done fasting outside of prayer. And what I mean by that is we go, well, we go a whole day, we fast, then we come together for an hour and pray. In my view, and as I understand it now and I'm reading this, I'm saying, well, fasting outside of prayer kind of seems not what we should be doing. Because even if we fast for one meal and pray at that time, I believe that's more God-honoring than going without a f two meals before that and then coming together for an hour. You see what I mean? There's, what it becomes is becomes uh, a religious thing that we do. We, we punish ourselves through fasting. And fasting should not be a punishment. It should not be to punish us. It should be to, to help us to hear from God. Those things we have to do sometimes. Fasting can help us to not idolize food, idolize things that we, we do idolize. And when we come to pray and those things uh, we, we don't fast from, what happens is that we're kind of lethargic. We're kind of lazy in the way we come to God. And I'm not saying all the time, but fasting is a helpful part of praying. And so we have to be careful. Where do we apply fasting? We should apply it in the moment, in the times we're praying together. And when we look at the meaning of fasting, it doesn't always mean a whole day of fasting. Uh, one one uh, dictionary puts it as a customary, uh, sorry, a choice nourishment. It says choice, choice nourishment. Does that mean sweets? Does that mean chocolate? Well, it might do if that's the thing that you have to have at that time. If you have to have something, if I have to have chocolate, if I have to have, um, I don't know, something, something of, a, of a sweet or something that I, I have every day, coffee, if I have to have coffee. That's a choice nourishment, isn't it? I have coffee every morning, every morning, around the same time every morning. And I need to tell you, it's not because of the caffeine, although maybe it helps. But it's not because of the caffeine. It's because it tastes so good. Now that is a choice nourishment. That's nice. Could I go without it and instead pray to God in that time? I 
probably could. It'd be difficult. I'm, I'm going to admit it'd be difficult because I'm used to having that choice nourishment. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying let, let's not labor the point of fasting needs to be this big. Uh, and I'll get to this when Jesus tells us what it should be. It's not this big, oh, woe is me, I'm fasting. I can tell you that we've done it here before and we've spoken about how hungry we are. That's wrong. <laughs> it's terrible. We should not be speaking about how hungry we are. Now, we can talk about the experience of fasting, but if we're coming together to pray, uh, we need to start being really disciplined about that uh, because Jesus tells us uh, later on, I'll get to that, what he says about how we need to be when we fast. So in its right context, fasting is as a result of intense prayer to God. So we can, we can pray without fasting, but fasting on its own is not biblical. That's my conclusion. That's what I've read. And I don't know any other way, any other time that they've done it without it, except, except when they did it wrong. Zechariah 7, verses 3 to 5. That's gone back to that. Zechariah 7, verse 3 to 5. People of Bethel, this is in Bethel, aptly named, sent men to go and ask the Lord. And they said this, by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? Imagine hearing that. 70 years of fasting and God speaking right into the heart that people really know they're doing it for religious reasons, to look good, to look holy. I'll leave it on there for now. 70 years of fasting meant nothing to the Lord because it was done insincerely. You see, what's important is not the regularity or the religiousness of the act of fasting, but that fasting as part of prayer can help deepen our understanding and the need for God above all things. Matthew 4, verse 4. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is the Christian or Christians seeking the will of God in prayer and fasting as part of concentrated and intense prayer time can help us to know and follow the will of God. It's a very specific purpose. So fasting does form part of the Christian life as prayer is to the Christian life. And we need to be clear that fasting is not commanded by Jesus specifically. But that fasting is a response to what Jesus has done. When Jesus made the once for all sacrifice on the cross, the day of atonement was no longer needed for those in Christ Jesus. The main occasion for fasting no longer existed. Hebrews 10, verse 8 to 10. First, he said, <clears throat> excuse me, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
Jesus describes fasting as an outworking of something far deeper than fasting in itself. Matthew 9, verse 14 to 15. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that it is not a command to fast, it is a response to fast. They are responding because they will mourn when Jesus leaves them. It is a response. His disciples could not fast in his presence because the bridegroom, Jesus, was with them. You can't mourn a person who's alive. I say alive because Jesus is still alive. But in, in person, with them right in that moment, Jesus is with them. But the, the, the age, the time of the age would turn. The bridegroom would be taken away. Jesus would ascend to the Father. And this age is seen to be the age when fasting is once again appropriate. But Jesus taught how this would be governed. How to keep it in check. Matthew 6, verse 16 to 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they were fasting. Truly I tell you, they, were, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It is not to be done to be noticed, but to be done without people knowing. It's done so we can be humbled by a holy God. Jesus' point was that a person who fasts should do everything to make himself look normal, do nothing to attract attention to his deprivation and spiritual struggle. From a personal perspective, as we each fast personally, when we do or, or when we don't, but when we do, it might be that you seek God's will. And in desiring that above all other things, you might fast from a meal or a choice nourishment in the process of praying fervently, like passionately. Like even in the sense that it, it, it's not, I'm going to describe this. I, I've often felt hungry at times, maybe when it is time to eat. Then I've had a drink of water, squash, whatever you want to call it, and I don't feel hungry anymore. And I'm wondering whether when, it's, when prayer is done to the glory of God, like when we really dig in, like we kind of forget about trying to satisfy our hunger, our human, our worldly when we get really into prayer I think we can it can go we can see much more that it's more about God and, and less about us how does that work as we see in Acts when they did this together as we first saw when they gathered together what they didn't do was lay out a 15 point plan about how and when to fast, set a start date, and then say, well, 40 days. Isn't that weird? I find this so odd. 
we pick numbers out of the Bible, don't we? And then we go, we'll do a thing and we'll pick a biblical number and then we'll put them together. It doesn't make it okay or right or holy just because we pick biblical things out of the Bible and go, we'll put them together. Doing 40 days is, is no better or, or worse probably than doing an hour. You see what I'm saying? It's not, we, we're not just doing this for, for holiness, to look holy, to look good. We're not doing it to, to impress God. God is not impressed by how we can stay off coffee. <laughs> but when they prayed in Acts, when they praised God, they were worshipping and fasting. They did it together. It was almost natural. And I've seen many books, many articles about how churches should fast, step-by-step -step programs of how to do it. And people have made millions out of these books. But I've come to the conclusion that one of the worst things to do is actually make a big deal out of fasting. When we fast as part of prayer and devotion to God, we're not trying to extract some false revelation from him. Think of it of what we're not doing is we're going on hunger strike. We're not trying to force God into some revelation because if you don't tell me, I won't eat. And we've often seen fasting as almost punishing ourselves and yet actually once we can get over that initial sense of what we think our body needs and actually focus on God, it's, it's not about missing the meal. It's actually about being in his presence, hearing the will of God. When we fast as part of prayer and devotion to God, we're, we're not trying to extract revelation. As I keep saying, prayer and most certainly fasting is not something to leverage against an almighty God. Maybe in the same principle we go, God, if I do this, you do this. That's not what it's for. Luke 18, verses 9 to 13. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Who's done that? Be careful, church. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The tax collector is right there, by the way. No shame. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Is this being humble? Is it really being humble? <laughs> big-headed. <laughs> Absolutely being big-headed. I, I, I read some, uh, I do sometimes do a search and, and look for certain subjects in the Bible. And, um, you have to be really careful when you do these searches. So I said, what's Bible verses on fasting? And I found this website. 40 verses on fasting. And it says, and these verses will help you to understand how to fast and what to do and what it means. And lo and behold, further down this list is this one verse on its own. Here's where I'm going to drive context home again. This verse is not teaching us about fasting. This verse in context is teaching about the selfishness, the big-headedness <laughs> of the Pharisee who said, oh, aren't I great? I'm not like them. 
When you search for subjects in terms of Bible verses, be careful that many websites just do word searches. That's just a little side warning because I've just experienced it and I thought, this doesn't look right. Look at the context of the verse and this parable is actually about the Pharisee being all big-headed, all about himself and how great he is. Yet in verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to, the, to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Is there any mention of fasting? I can't, there's nothing here about fasting. The admission that he is just not enough. He, he cannot do this. He is not sufficient to save himself. I have, a, have mercy on me, says a sinner. Fasting done right can only be done with a heart that is focused on and living towards a holy God. A heart that acknowledges our wickedness and the need of a saviour. Got some long verses. This is Isaiah 58, verses 4 to 10. This is a rebuke from God. This is what he says. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and is striking each other with wicked fists. That, that's not unusual. That, that's, you might not experience it. If you ever get really hungry, your emotion starts changing. Some people... If I don't keep it in check, yeah, I can get a little bit sharp. I can get a little bit short with people. That says, I, I, you know, I need to come and, and bring it to the Lord, right? My reliance is probably on food and coffee. <laughs> I'm just saying that because sermons teach me as well, by the way. They don't just, I'm not here preaching to you as the high almighty, like I know everything. I'm reading this and going, whew, yeah, that's, that's me right there. But he says, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Uh, is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Bear in mind, he's just said, is that all you do? When it's all you do, when you sit in sackcloth and are obvious about it, you're saying, you're not honoring me. I'm not going to hear you because all you're doing is, is self-pity. Fasting is not done to worship God here. Next verse. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? This is the kind of fasting he's saying he has chosen. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of God will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noon day. It, I need to be clear what this is. This is not about us. The light that he's talking about here is, is God. 
is God. And quickly look at this, and, and if we don't read it right, if you do all these great things and serve the poor, oh, you're going to be, people are going to love you. No. If you do it right, they'll see what you believe, which is that we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again and saved us. They'll see God working. So what about us? We might agree, we might agree to come together before the Lord at a time when we would normally eat and agree that before we eat, we should pray fervently into his will. We might do that as a church. We can do that. We might say after the service, we'll have a time of prayer and fasting, then eat together. But here is the second part of what we're looking at. That time has to be focused and purposeful. Back to our verses here. In these verses and acts, the church sought the will of God and to know the will of God, then to act on the will of God. In this case, they wanted to know how and where the gospel was to go next. And that is a right and biblical way to fast together. Not doing it for financial reward, not to live our best lives now, but to live a life, life in light of and for the purpose of spreading the gospel. We don't fast and pray to impute our purpose onto God. I want this to happen, so I'm going to fast and pray. What they did here was they wanted to know the will of God, which God already has. To know and carry out the already established purposes and will of God. And you might think that sounds difficult. It is and it isn't. The verses state that they worshipped. This is the reason I spoke a few weeks ago about why we need to go back to prayer that's drenched in adoration and glory to God. Yes, we do request. Yes, we lift those to God. But this is why we need to come back to the adoration the glorifying of our Lord and Saviour. Less about the outcome of our requests. Find peace in our prayers. Psalm 37, verse 4. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. To pray out scripture, to worship God before anything else, is to delight ourselves in the Lord. We need to do that because the desires of our heart that he's promised must first be a heart that delights in him, not a heart that delights in the worldly. This verse does not mean, if you just love me, I will give this unrepentant heart everything it desires. Some people might desire, and I, got, and I don't know what these things are, they might desire a McLaren MP412C car. Apparently that's the most desired car in the world. They might desire a Cessna Citation XLS jet. And you know what, that, that, sounds, that sounds like I'm making a joke, but my word, there are churches that believe 
in God for the reason of getting a jet. It is shameful. It is worrying. It is disturbing that anyone would believe in God for such a thing that they would, they would try to belittle the power of an almighty God. You know what they say on these, uh, on, on these, um, in these churches that are about prosperity and rich and money and wealth? You know they have seasons where they say, what are you believing in for this season? I'm believing in for a jet. I'm believing in for this. I'm believing in for that. We need to pray for people who are, who are doing that. I don't know that God's impressed with that. I worry and I fear when I hear it, when I read about God and I hear people going, I'm praying for this big house and this big jet and this big thing. And, and that's the only reason they believe in him. So I really hope you're not going to hell. I really, I, I do pray that you're not going to hell because that doesn't sound right to me. I'm not you're not humbled by that, right? You're not humbled by asking for massive treasures because that's the only thing you're really interested in. But if we delight in the Lord in the right way, that is to revel in the glorifying and worship of God, then our hearts are turned to the desires of the Lord, the will of the Lord. So what God is training us to do is to repeat from our own hearts what God's will already is. He's so clever. When we read that scripture, we're not reminding him, we're reminding ourselves. We're not reminding God about what he wrote. He's not a forgetful old man with a beard. He's just not. When we read it, it keeps telling our heart what you believe, flesh, the heart is de uh, deceiving above all things, it says, no, 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 align with God. Read the scripture. Your heart to change, to turn to the will of God, to hear what his will is. And that is why we need to get back to seeking God purposefully and in some way sacrificially, but without any other agenda other than the one that glorifies him and seeks his will and purpose. When we place the will of God as a central purpose, to our time with him and in his presence, then I think we can see that fasting is put in its rightful place. When it's in its rightful place for its rightful purpose, then he never fails to reward it. There is no way we deserve any reward for doing that. And yet he does. Focus on him. Make him central to what we do, even when we're fasting. I'm going to leave you with this uh, quote. It's William Thrasher. He's uh, an American Bible teacher, and he says, the abstinence is not to be an end in itself, but rather for the purpose of being separated to the Lord and to concentrate on godliness. This kind of fasting reduces the influence of our self-will and invites the Holy Spirit to do a more intense work in us. That's great, isn't it? Great quote. Let's pray, and then we'll worship together.
Lord, we just thank you that um, you're so gracious in, in, in even when we've done things that just don't, that don't align with your glory, that don't honor you. We thank you, Lord, that you're just so gracious to us and, and given us a way to come back to you. Lord, thank you that you teach us. You teach us to be humble. And Lord, that is the most difficult thing of a Christian life is to be humbled. In a, in a world full of people, including us, who really do love ourselves, who really love our self will who really love our, our, our ideas and our own thoughts and how impressive we are Lord you call us as people to come and humble ourselves and Lord we, we just want to acknowledge that as you I think I believe acknowledge just reading your word that it is not a, a light thing to accept Jesus into our lives it is not a simple thing. It is not to be downplayed. Lord, thank you that the word is a mirror of our brokenness. That is written and you show us the brokenness in creation so that we might submit to our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for evidence. <laughs> But we do pray, Lord, for those that just refuse it. We pray, Lord, for those that just won't, won't have any of it. Because we want them to come to you, Lord. We want them to know that they can choose to be an eternity with you and not spend eternity in hell. Lord, give us a heart that is not about being right or lording it over people, but a heart that wants to see the most hardened person, broken and come to you. Lord, keep teaching us how to be humbled by your presence, humbled by who you are, humbled by your awesome power, to live rightly in the fear of God because of who you are. Lord, show us how we can seek the will of God in these times of prayer and fasting. Thank you, Lord, that you're just too amazing for words. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that, thank you that I heard about Jesus. Thank you that we heard about Jesus. Thank you that it struck our heart, broke it, said, look at this. Oh, Lord, every day. Not in guilt, but the, the reality of the brokenness that we know of now, Lord, doesn't leave us in despair. It points us back to the holiness of our Lord and Savior, that we are covered in righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that we've got something we just don't deserve. 
nothing of us but everything of you. Thank you that you did all of it. And Lord, we just want to praise you right now. Thank you that what you've done is just beyond anything we can ever imagine. Thank you, Lord, that you are our Savior. Amen.